There is a lovely road that runs from Ikopo into the hills. These hills are grass-covered and rolling, and they are lovely beyond any singing of it. The grass is rich and matted. You cannot see the soil. It is well tended, and not too many cattle feed upon it. Keep it. Guard it. Care for it. For it keeps men. Guards men. Cares for men. Destroy it, and man is destroyed. But the rich green hills break down. They fall to the valley below, and falling change their nature. For they grow red and bare. They cannot hold the rain and mist, and the streams are dry in the kloofs. Too many cattle feed upon the grass, and too many fires have burned it. Down in the valleys, women scratch the soil that is left. They are valleys of old men and old women, of mothers and children. The men are away. The young men and the girls are away. The soil cannot keep them anymore. Well, that was the opening to Cry the Beloved Country, released in 1951. And Bob was just saying before we started that it's one of his favorite movies. And I would have to agree that after watching it, I would put it in my top ten, at least, maybe even higher. And... That's the movie we're going to be talking about today. And I'm Matt Johnson, coming to you from North Bend. And this is Bob Johnson in Los Angeles. Welcome, everybody, back to Classic Movie Reviews and the 1951 version of Cry the Beloved Country. Uh, There's a later version that was made in the 1980s, uh, which is also excellent. But this, this movie just resonates with me on so many levels. Uh, I didn't see it as a young boy, but I saw it when I was in college um, and uh, was just so impressed with it. it. It's, it's, you know, Matt, as I think about it, it's kind of a simple film and it's not the highest production value has ever seen and it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Agreed. And actually, uh, some of it adds to the, uh, adds to the movie, the, the earthiness, the, the real life, the, the, it almost in some cases looks like they were just doing it in pop-up scenes right there in Johannesburg or in the in countryside. I think they were. I was reading that they filmed it almost entirely in South Africa. And you know, we can talk about that. And uh, you're listening to Classic Movie Reviews, and you can find us on the internet at classicmoviereviews.net and on Patreon. Just go to patreon.com slash classicmoviereviews. I don't think it was made with the blessing of the government because they were filming those scenes like in the city without any permission from the government. I was reading about that. Then the producer and director... Uh, were able to bring Canada Lee and Sidney Poitier into the country by saying that they were his indentured servants. I read that too. It was amazing. They had to use that that reason to even have them enter to make the film. I uh, I had a I had a little bit of uh, 
information I sent you on Alan Patton, who wrote this book and uh, was a real anti-apartheid activist in, in South Africa throughout his whole life. There's so many things that he did. One of the characters in the film, and I'm kind of jumping around here a little bit, there's a character in the film named um, Martins, Martins, played by Michael Goodlife. And I, I really think that that is Alan Patton's representation of himself because he had this uh, over decade-long job as, a, as one of the principals at a reformatory uh, for a black youth. And he'd done all kinds of reforms. And there's so many things about that character that I, th I think, from what I've read about Alan, capture him as a person. I thought he did a great job. Well, the film, in some ways, it's very simple. And it's a story about a father who travels to the big city from this tiny little rural uh, village. And he's looking for his son and he's looking for his brother and his sister. And there's a line in there where he says that people go to Johannesburg and we never hear from them again. You know, it's, all, it's just like they disappear. And there's this air of mystery about what has happened to them. And there's a bit of a detective story interweaved here where he's trying to find his son and they go to all these different places and one of them is the reformatory school where we meet uh martins and it was interesting to see the different portrayals of white people and sort of what their roles were in society and how he was trying to help uh uplift these black youths through this reformatory school and i read that when the director or no, the writer of, what was his name? Um, Alan Patton. Alan Patton uh, took over that reformatory school. He made a lot of changes in that he took down all the barbed wire and he planted flowers and planter boxes and really tried to change how that whole thing was approached. And I agree that I think that was him in the movie. It was his representation of himself. I, I, like, I like your summary of, of the film. Uh, it's a simple film in terms of the story and the directness, and uh, it just moves ahead very well. But it has so many layers to it, and and one of the one of them is uh, the portrayal of all the characters in the film, black or white, as more than just a one-dimensional kind of a person. Uh, the white farmer uh, who has money and whose son is in Johannesburg trying to uh, get money together for a youth uh, group facility for black youth. And, and the arc of his change in that film, that is key to the film from when it begins until it ends. But it's, you know, everything about it just seems to me, not, not ever having lived in that environment, but it seems so real and true to what was going on. Put it up with like my another favorite film of mine, Gentleman's Agreement. Oh yeah, for sure. There's that scene at the beginning where Charles Carson's character, uh, James Jarvis, is uh, plowing his field while well, he has somebody on a tractor plowing his field. 
and then his neighbor rides up on his horse and they have this conversation about his son and how his son is trying to help uh, black people in Johannesburg. Hello, James. Hello, Frank. You're an optimist. Well, I'm trying. James, you're wasting your time and just spoiling your tractor. How do you come, Barbara? They're well, James, they're well. Do they like living in Springs? Yes, they like it. Dick's going strong. He got a rise last month. Good. I see your son's going strong, too. Oh? Dick sent me the Johannesburg paper. Shaking hands, too. He's moving fast. Yes. Why know they need native housing in Johannesburg? This whole shantytown business is a damn disgrace. But damn it, James. He and I don't see eye to eye on these matters, Frank. I guess you don't. No, keep the paper. I thought Margaret might like to see it. She would like to see it. He can't do wrong in his mother's eyes. You know, it's funny, James. You can't deny it. Here, we can't get labor because all our labor wants to go to the cities. When they get there, there aren't enough houses for them. So Arthur tries to get them more houses. And you and I, James, get less labor. Sometimes I think I'll chuck farming. <laughs> it is funny, you can't deny it. Well, I'll be going. James Jarvis makes a comment like, well, I can understand why he might want to help, but does he have to shake their hand? Yeah. And and then yeah, I remember that yeah and 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 that's like that's everything you need to know about how he views the world at the beginning of the movie and then at the end of the movie they're back in that same field and it's that same neighbor and it's like his his whole worldview had completely been upended and changed and it was all it was a really interesting line because the neighbor says well you, you seem like you've changed and he goes, yeah, it was my son that did it. And the neighbor was like, well, after he had died? And his dad goes, yes, after he had died. And it was because of all the letters that his son had written. It was so powerful, the things that he was saying, that he his father realized that he, he was wrong. And that was amazing to watch, that change. It's coming at last, James. I hope so, Frank. How's Margaret today? It's not well, Frank. And yet, the old parson's allowed to come back here. Yes, I know the bishop's moving him. But why was he allowed to come back at all? When every man, woman and child in the countryside knows what happened. It's insult to injury. It was our injury, Frank. It wasn't your injury. It was an injury to us all. If that wasn't enough, he brings back this girl. His son's wife. She's going to have a child. Why? So that murder can go on? How can you say that, Frank? You know the kind of man they've gone to? I haven't had that pleasure. But I know the kind of scum he's produced already. Frank! I can't listen to you, Frank. I'm not quite finished. Barbara says you gave a thousand pounds to some black boys club. Spent half your time down at Inter Cheney. I hear your grandson is always down there, too. I hear you're going to build a black paradise. Do you remember what you yourself used to say about him to Cheney? I remember. You and Margaret lose your son. You go to Johannesburg and you go through the whole damnable business and then you come back and pay out. You know what it looks like? A kind of conscience money. Well, I wouldn't have put it like that, but I'll accept it. What gave you the idea? My son. Arthur? 
Yes. You mean after he was dead? Yes. My God. You see, Frank, I never understood the boy. And when this happened, I thought I would never understand. And then I did. They say I'm going crazy. Yes, they do. Is that what you think, Frank? James, I'll go. It was. I think his character changed the very most of all the characters in the film. And uh, I mentioned when I sent you the, the, my write-up a couple of days ago that when he's when the farmer's sitting there in his son's room reading what his son had written, uh, it made me cry. Uh, that scene where he comes down the stairs and he just stare and he looks at the floor and he, you can see that there was like this stain on the wooden floor from where yeah. his son had bled out because his son had been shot there uh yeah that brought tears to my eyes because i was just imagining being a father myself and and trying to imagine what that would have been like it was intense well you're getting kind of back to the the progression of the theme the uh black uh, priest uh, pre not priest minister played by canada lee just epitomizes the, his upbringing and the fact that he was in a rural setting and the difference between the black and the white societies was like as wide as an ocean they they would see each other but there was very very little interaction at all and his trip to Johannesburg was like his journey of a lifetime he had never really been that far away that I could tell and he had to take these meager savings to buy his train ticket and and his and his simple approach to the whole thing as they were coming into the beginning of the city he turns to the people in the segregated car and said are we in Johannesburg should I get ready to get off and they said oh, they, they, they all kind of laugh and say no no not yet on this there are the mines. Those white hills in the distance. Can we see the gold? <laughs> that is only the rock out of the mine. Who picked it? We dig it. And when it is too hard to dig, we go away. And the white men blow it out with the dynamite. Then we come back and load it onto the trucks. And how is it brought up? In the cage. They'll wind it up with a long rope on the wheel. Wait, I'll show you one. M for this. There's the wheel. What do the white men do with the gold? They sell it to the white men in America. And what do they do? They have a big hole in the ground and they put it all back again. <laughs> you see, that is what makes the world go around. <laughs> Do they pay much money in the mines? Not much in Fundis. Three shillings a day. You can get more money than that in Johannesburg in Fundis. My brother knows a man who gets five pounds a week. Where does he get such money? In the factory. A man can do many things in Johannesburg in Fundis. 
He can work in the mines or in the white man houses or help in the garage or teach in our schools. He can even be a doctor for our people. And what can a woman do? <laughs> it is not like the courtroom from this. Is this Johannesburg? <laughs> no, no, that is nothing. that they call the flats, where the white people live. Where do our people live? Not here in Mfundis. They live outside. How do they come to work? Horses, trains, bicycles. You'll see. The Alexandria bus has gone to sixpence, so the people walk. Is it far? Ten miles. It was just completely new to that whole environment. There was that scene before he goes on the train trip. He's talking to, I guess, is it his wife? Um, yes, it, it gets a little confusing because of the, the language and the culture. He refers to her as mother, but yeah. it is his wife, yeah. yes. Well, they had saved up money to send their son to the to the high school. or may, may, I think it was like an, a further education. I'm not sure what level. And she looks at him and says, he's never going to go to that. You know that he's never going to go to that. And again, like as a father thinking about all these hopes and aspirations that you have for your son and, and then kind of coming to grips with the fact that, that those were just your dreams and the reality of what's happening in life is, you know, totally different. And he he went through a lot of change in his character. Canada Lee's character uh, is named Reverend Stephen Kumalo. But I, I would say that the, the the change wasn't as dramatic as it was for Jarvis's character. That opening that we just listened to, where they're talking about how the land has changed, and I think it's also talking to like overpopulation. Well, and also the laws of segregation and just the whole economy have kind of ruined the local small villages and people are now going to the big city to get work. And there's an indication that, well, Jarvis's son is trying to help build housing for all these uh, people that are moving to the big city because there's just not enough housing. It's just perfectly setting up what we're going to experience when we get to Johannesburg. It's like he's, they're just foreshadowing all these terrible things mm -hmm. that are going to happen just in these little tiny snippets of conversation in the village before he even gets on the train. And I thought that was just brilliant writing and directing. And, and totally. And the cinematography of that village and the utter poverty and the joy that little girl had when she brought a letter to him. Mm -hmm. And it was like a mystery. It's like they, they got one letter a year or something. He was afraid to open it. Yeah, they didn't even want to open uh, it. <laughs> all of that just sets the tone for, for what is about to come about to his life. You're right, he does 
go through a lot of change. Another subtle part of the film that uh, I, I, I really enjoy is that uh, he's taken in by a Catholic uh, set of Catholic priests, and uh, he's an Anglican minister. Mm-hmm. Uh, so there's an inter-religious kind of coordination, and you can see the very, very early beginnings of, uh, if I, I guess I could call it integration in the Catholic set up there with the white and black priests, including Sidney Poitier. But you know, it, it, uh, Candida Lee's character's first encounter when he gets to Johannesburg, <laughs> he meets up with this shrewd guy that gets his money. He's you just knew so that innocent. was going to happen. You knew that was going to happen. And <laughs> that guy was too slick. You know, He was oh. talking him up and saying he's going to help him and walks off with a pound, which we no at this point is a lot of money because some of the people working in the mines only make three shillings a day which is what would be like three cents or so and and everybody and all the priests uh, at the place where canada lee is staying know exactly what happened because they all kind of chuckle as as uh sydney poitier tells the story about this guy so they were aware that it was going to happen but can he was just so naive the, the story just keeps getting more and more layered. Sidney Poitier, I forget his name of his character. He's, uh, he he's priest, is uh, Reverend Mazmangu. Uh, agrees to kind of be his guide. So he gets him shelter and then he takes him. I think the first encounter he has with his family is with his sister. I think this is an important encounter because it, it shows how... Uh, he has a lot of set ideas again kind of going back to this beginning where he had this idea that his son was going to go off to this uh, school but uh reverend kamalo is pretty judgmental of his sister about what she's had to do to survive i mean she's just trying to survive it's bare yes. minimum survival <clears throat> at this point like it, she's just trying to get through the day and he's just so mad at her for having to make money by uh, having sex with men and the the his, her do, her son is just sort of running around in underwear basically and you know the, and we get our first view of these slums that are outside the on the outskirts of Johannesburg and we learn that it's some of the people walk 10 miles to work every day so that's 20 miles a day that they walk just to get to work his biggest change through the movie is like this realization that he has a lot of assumptions about things that just aren't true and that he has to have a softer heart, a more compassionate heart for people and especially his family. It's so true. It, uh, there's, like I say, there's so many layers to the film and, and Sidney Poitier's character at the beginning is a bit sort of uh, uh, immune to some of the things going on in the city because he's lived it his whole life probably but he changes somewhat too just seeing how this father is so insistent on moving ahead to find his his sister and he encounters his brother and his brother has a terrible reputation and then he finally meets up with his son but uh Poitier's a, a, a character moves to be really more angry at at things than he was at the beginning. And that scene after the court case, when he has that confrontation with uh, Kamala's brother, oh, is yeah. another excellent, excellent 
portrayal of what was going on. He was so upset with that guy. You got little glimpses of what he might have been like before he entered the church, kind of. Like, I think he was a more rough and tumble, tough kind of guy. Some of that comes out when he has these encounters. All the characters are so interesting and multidimensional. Canada Lee's brother, right away I got the sense that this guy was doing deals and, and doing whatever he could to, to be successful and, and provide more income for himself. And uh, he his value set was really different uh, than, than what we had seen up until that time. And it comes through later in the movie. He'll do whatever necessary to protect his own son. Yeah. It's, it's again, it's, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty straightforward story with all kinds of layers and complexity and, and uh, intrigue. It's amazing. Sidney Poitier even said, he said something like, don't be so afraid. It's just one person, one incident out of thousands of things like this that are going on or something like that. It's like, it's like, this is just a tiny snapshot of what's happening in this wider society. I love the way that they set it up so that we could travel around to different parts of the the city and see it from different perspectives because we go to Jarvis's son's house and we kind of see how it is for them and how they live and it's just so completely different and like opposite to how the black people are living in the in the outskirts and the slums and that's a good point because we also take a journey to the uh, reformatory where Martins lives to find out more about what's going on with uh, Kamala's son. And and that's a whole different trip as well. Yeah, I think we've covered kind of the plot in terms of what happens. And I, I wanted to talk a bit more about that interaction that happens with Kamala and that sort of head Catholic priest where Kamala's just in such despair because he's realizing that He's lost his son, and he's blaming himself for it. The black people in the movie are always sort of in deference to the white people. And I thought that priest that was talking to Kamala was trying to just do it as like one person to another person, not so much as a white man to a black man. felt weird because it was a weird power dynamic between them, and I couldn't quite figure out what would have been going through his head, like Kamala's head in that interaction. I was, I wanted to see what you thought about that. You know the one I'm talking about? Oh, I do, yes. Uh, just to set the stage for that, I think Kamala's son and two other people in order to get some money to support their life, because his son um, is living with a 16-year-old, or she thinks she's 16-year-old, and she's pregnant, and they don't have a dime or any money at all. So they go to rob this house of jewelry and they don't think anybody's home. And tragically, uh, Farmer Jarvis's son is there, interrupts the robbery, and Kamala's son shoots him with a gun, shoots him with a pistol. And all of that leads up to that scene where Father Vincent and Kamala sit in the uh, back in the church. And that's totally accurate the way you describe it. Because even in earlier scenes... Uh, there's the reference to the white people as master. Mm-hmm. Yes, master. I mean, that, that that was almost like Mr. or Sir, master, subordinate. It's very clear that the writing that Patton did on this and the screenplay really brings that out. And I think Kamala's just lost. He's 
everything he, he thought was going to happen, like you mentioned, is totally different. His sister is a prostitute. His brother is playing games to try to get ahead. His son is now going to be tried for murder. He's got a, his son's got a, a, a partner who's pregnant, 16 years old, and what is she going to do? And her, that's a tragic story in itself. She didn't even know how old she was. That was an incredible scene, actually, that one where Kamala goes to talk to her and is yes. kind of just, I don't know, he's, I don't know what he was trying to do there. He was sort of, I think he was trying to get a sense from her if she was really serious about wanting to marry his son. He was trying to figure out what he could do to help her, but the way that he did that, I felt bad for her. He was kind of verbally beating her up yeah, a little bit. He was. And she was like a child, basically. She was 16 years old. Yeah. They, I don't think she knew where her parents were or they had died. or I'm not sure exactly what had happened there. But the whole thing is just this mixture of, of poverty, grief, uh, separation. There's another powerful scene. I, I'm moving ahead a little bit. Kamala and his brother and another person go to visit his son in prison. This is while he's, I think he's... I still think he's awaiting trial. They're starting to uh -huh. figure it out. Does, he's, he said he did the shooting, so do we even need a lawyer? We don't have the money for that. His brother's already figured out he's going to get his own son out by uh, saying that they weren't involved. They didn't do the shooting. Yeah. Remember that scene that set up outside the penitentiary when uh, Martin shows up and he finally loses it and says to the brother, I'm certainly glad you're not my brother for the kind of support you're not showing. Well, well, we must do it once and see a lawyer. A lawyer, my brother? For what should we spend such money? Story is plain. There can be no doubt about it. What is the story? Story? These three boys went to a place that they thought was empty. They struck down the servant. The white man heard the noise and came down to see, and then went my son, mine, not yours, shot him. He was afraid, he says. Has he told you this in front of the others? Why not, if it is the truth? Perhaps you do not need a lawyer. If he admits shooting the white man, there's nothing more to be said. Will you have a lawyer then? Perhaps. You see, my brother, there is no proof that my son or this other young man was there at all. Not there at all. But my son... Yes, yes, but who would believe your son? Do you think I should have a lawyer? It's not my work to get lawyers. But if you want to go back to Sophia Town, I shall take you. It's not my work to get lawyers. It's my work to help, to reform, to uplift. It's wonderful work, wonderful work, noble work. You must not think a parson's work's nobler. You save souls. I save souls too. What good is it? You see them come into the world and you see them go out. You saw your son come into the world. You will see him go out of it too. Are you coming to Sophia Town or are you not? 
you're a clever man. But thank God you're not my brother. Yeah, that was crazy. Unbelievable. He was so mad at the brother, and right, rightfully so. But on the other hand, you you end up seeing like these other perspectives because you see that he's just looking out for his son as well, and he chose to do it a certain way, which kind of threw his brother's son under the bus. But his brother's son had confessed to the murder. I mean, he went to the police and gave himself up and said, "I shot him." And I think he had so much remorse about it. He said that he was just afraid and it was an accident. He didn't mean to kill anybody. And I, th I think in maybe a part of his mind, he was hoping that they would understand that it was an accident and that they would go light on him in whatever punishment that he got. And no, I mean, they're not going to do that because they see these black men these young black men as this incredible threat and they're gonna make yeah. a they're gonna oh, make yeah. a, a statement with with this and they sentence him to death by hanging and that scene where he gets that sentence handed down is that's another scene that i cried in because oh i know that was hard to watch well and and, and then at the meantime kind of parallel the the jarvises are dealing with their grief and he's been reading about what his son had been doing and his commitment to that. And his son had a, a good friend that worked with him on that. And then there's the whole scene at the son's funeral. And uh, within the church, it's predominantly white, but there are blacks, but they're pretty much relegated to the back of the church. And then outside, there's a huge crowd. And the scene at the end of that service where both Mr. and Mrs. Jarvis are just kind of standing there in a numb state, and the black people come up to her first and give their condolences, and then uh, a black man comes up to uh, Jarvis and extends his hand, and it goes right back to that saying, why does he have to shake their hands at the beginning of the Yeah. Film? And he's reticent, and then he does that and then the whole group kind of come and and you can see that's a part of that transformation that Jarvis is going through. That's kind of the turning point and that's the brilliance of the writing. I mean they set that yeah. up in the first five minutes of the movie. They set that scene up and that's like such a powerful payoff. I love that when that happens in a movie. I just love that so much. That's why I that's that's one of the reasons why I love watching movies is when they can they can do that you know they they set this expectation up and then they subvert it and it completely changes the changes the way that character is his where that arc is going for that character yeah i had i had a, a, a another experience watching it again i've probably seen it now four times at least in fact i'm going to buy the dvd so i can add it to my collection of dvds so i have it whenever i can watch it and I, I sent this to you, and, and it really epitomizes my feeling about the movie. This is an excellent story, straightforward, believable characters. It shows that these films could be made 70 years ago. Yeah. It's as relevant to me today as it was in 1951. And it restores some of that faith I have in that there were people in this business that wanted to do these kinds of things. And oftentimes they did it at their own risk because Canada leaves 
got into all kinds of trouble through his life and died at an early age of 45. Well, and, they could have uh, been put in prison if they'd been caught and found out what they were doing in South Africa. Yeah. They could have ended oh, up yeah. in prison with no trial. So the fact that they had the courage to go in and do this, I mean, that just adds a whole other dimension to the movie. Yeah, and Canada Lee's bio- biography was really interesting. I, I, I thought it? maybe I something was that. Yeah. wrong with his right eye. And I read that he had a boxing accident where his retina was detached and he didn't want to tell anybody because he didn't want to not be able to box but that ended up ending his boxing career because he ended up going blind in that one eye it's just a it's a a tragic story nobody knows how many boxing professional boxing matches he had the estimate is anywhere from 60 to 200. jeez and then he was boxer too he was he started in macbeth in the Uh federal theater project in 19 macbeth was 1936 and the director was orson wells <laughs> yeah, that was crazy <laughs> the guy it's yeah, amazing so cool he the, another movie that he's in that is a, is a good movie it's a hitchcock movie oh lifeboat lifeboat yeah. he's canada lee's in that i wanted to watch that now after seeing him in this movie <laughs> i know <Yeah. laughs> there's another powerful scene where where canada lee spends time in the prison that may have been the earlier one. I may have been mixing up the, the sequence, but he even asked the guard for some additional time. And the guard is caring enough to say, okay, but not for long. Even the guard is portrayed as, you know, having some kind of human emotion, not just a, a Gestapo kind of person, which easily could have been done in yeah. the film. Yeah. It made me think of that that idea that, you know, there were, there were quote-unquote good white people in that society. And you could say that maybe, like, Jarvis's mom could fall into that category, or maybe that guard in some way. And, and yet, they didn't really do anything to go against the grain, right? So there were, there were people like the guy's neighbor, Jarvis's neighbor, and I think maybe that judge um, and some of the police who were there to really reinforce and, and keep intact that uh, segregation between blacks and whites. And they saw that as like their divine right. It's amazing to watch that movie and then to think of the struggle that it took to end apartheid and how long that took from 1951 to when that actually happened. And you had mentioned that the, was it the writer or the director died like a year before apartheid ended and didn't get to see that happen? Yeah. The writer, uh, Alan Patton died, uh, in 1988. And that was, you know, apartheid was really kind of unraveling then, but he never lived to see uh, Nelson Mandela inaugurated as president in 1994 or to see him uh, taken out of prison or all of that change. He kind of, he just didn't make it that far, but he was a guy that stood up to the system. He was, he formed the uh, South African liberal party, Uh which was disbanded in 1960 by the government because it had black and white members meeting together. Yeah. He, 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 he spent time in prison too. Pushed out against that system. It must have been incredibly draining and frustrating and also invigorating. He wrote another book 
that I, I'm going to read. It's called, he wrote a lot of things, but this book was in 1953, Too Late, The Fowl Rope, which is a bird, and it portrays the life of a white man in that same society. I, I, I want to read that and talks about his transformation and what goes on. In, in a lot of ways, uh, Alan Patton was sort of at the forefront of what was going on. But he was a very devout spiritual person. He, he didn't believe in um, violence. Mm -hmm. And that was, uh, there was a lot of pressure to, to become more aggressive in that whole society because it was so, it was so separate everything yeah it really shows that in the movie really well um i i do want to talk about one more scene before we wrap it up and that oh please might yes. be the most powerful scene in the movie for me it was it was probably one of the best scenes in film ever for me which is when kamala and jarvis unexpectedly meet up when uh, kamala is kind of running going to look for this other person's family member kamala just completely breaks down realizing that he is gonna have to tell jarvis that it was his son that that killed J jarvis's son there is something between you and me infundis but i do not know what it is i do not know but i desire to know you need not be in fear of me i doubt if i could tell john you must tell it in Fundis. Is it heavy? It is the heaviest thing of all my years. Tell it then. It may lighten you. I'm afraid. I see you are afraid. If it is my anger of which you are afraid, you need not be afraid. There will be no anger in me against you. And this thing that is the heaviest thing of all my years is the heaviest thing of all yours also. You can mean only one thing. It was my son that killed your son. I have heard you. I understand. There is no anger in me. You had no thought that I would be here at the house of the daughter of Smith. How did you know me? I've seen you riding past Ndocheni, past the church where I work. That perhaps you saw the boy also. He too used to ride past Ndocheni. You remember? I remember. There was a brightness in him. Yes, there was a brightness in him. Muzan, it is a hard word to say, but my heart holds deep sorrow for you, for the mistress, and for the young woman and for the children. Yes, yes. Yes, yes, I shall call the mistress of the house. Father, there's an old man in town who's she says some fundies she does not know. Thank you, Muxa. 
stay with him, Lumsa. Go on, Fortis. I thought the portrayal, I thought the acting from both of those actors and the, the writing and the portrayal of that, the, the directing, the cinematography was just spot on. Just everything about that felt so real to me. It did. It was almost like it really wasn't a scene from a film. It was just we were privileged to see two people going through this horrific experience and together sharing that with each other and Jarvis was uh I, I felt that many times he was just sort of numb like he'd shut down because of this tragedy and I think it had an effect on his wife who died shortly after all this happened but that scene yeah and then a parallel scene is at the very end of the they have another exchange and we find out along a little earlier than that scene that Jarvis gave a thousand pounds to the man that was working with his son to build these a uh, better life, uh, better buildings and, and facilities for uh, the Africans. So that, those scenes are really, you're right though, that one of the two of them outside the house is one of the best scenes I've ever seen. That one and where, he's, where Jarvis is reading those letters. Oh yeah. That yeah. just, yeah, it's amazing. I, I, I think he was shut down. Uh, I think they both kind of were shut down a little bit because th I think they were in shock of, uh, you know, Jarvis lost his son in this really violent, unexpected way. And so did Kamala. I mean, Kamala, I think, was kind of hopeful when they saw that he had been at the reformatory school and and had seem, seemingly been doing pretty well. Mm -hmm. and, yeah. and, you know, that was kind of like this point in the movie where he's like, oh, maybe everything's going to work out. And then we get to this scene that we're talking about, and it's like he's, you know, just at rock bottom. Um, but I also think that although they were shut down, I think that they had sort of a real turning point for both of them in that scene of like forgiveness and that there was a path forward for them that they could they could move on and get pa get past this and that honestly i think that they they could do it together and i think that really came out in that scene that you mentioned at the end where jarvis comes riding up on the horse and says how dare you think about leaving how could you do that Police! Your flowers were of great beauty. Thanks, sir. There is one thing you should know. My wife was already suffering when we went to Johannesburg. It was one of her last wishes that a new church should be built at Indochini. I have seen the bishop, and you are not to go away. How could you go? For what did my son die if you were to go away?
This is the night. Where would it be? When the sun rises. One thing is about to be finished. But here is something that is only begun. And while I live, it will continue. Rosa, do not go before I have thanked you. For all the things you have done. For... I knew a man who was in darkness till you found him. For all the white men I have ever known. I am no saintly man. Of that I cannot speak. But God put his hands on you. That may be. That may be. Mfundis, go well. This night, stay well. Go well. Go well. Yeah. Get, we're going to build a new church. You need to be here. And there was this bond between them that I think was going to last for the rest of their life. Well, I, I, as I mentioned in the thing I sent to you, I, I give the film easily a 10. And uh, in my other look at it, in terms of how does it is it relevant to today, uh, it's it's totally relevant today. I'd give it an A. It's just, yeah. I, in fact, I think I said at the end of that that if I were able to do this, I'd make it a mandatory film for everyone to watch. Mm-hmm. I can't believe I haven't seen it up until now. It's crazy. Like this is one of the best movies I've ever seen. And I'll, I'll use Arthur's rating scale of a 15. Yeah. <laughs> well, the other thing is it, it did get a couple of awards in Europe, but no no Academy Award nominations. Yeah, I can believe that, it. That's amazing. Yeah, and so. I just wanted to mention Vincent uh, Zoltan Korda, who was the producer of this film. And he was known for these kinds of films, as was as were his two brothers. Just a partial list of the brothers and him. Uh, he did The Four Feathers, Sahara with Humphrey Bogart. His brother, Alexander and Vincent, brothers, did To Be or Not To Be. Remember that film with Jack Benny? Oh, yeah. Yep. With the, in Poland? Such and The movie. Third Man. Oh, gosh. In 1949 with Orson Welles. So these people knew how to make really relevant, timely movies, and they made a lot of them. Yeah, I, I like what you said that it it shows that these movies could be made. They're they're just these little gem, there's these gems that exist from this time period, but there's very few of them. But it is like yeah, you know, they they do. It's exist like a little there. glimmer of hope. Yeah. Um, our, our next movie coming up for our podcast is a, another African movie that was recommended by author Mogambo, which you said was not an African version. name. It's not a not a real African name of something, right? <laughs> well, I read I read that it was the the, the best theory now is that it was uh, named for a restaurant here in Los Angeles, the Magambo. Yeah, <laughs> Clark Gable, uh, Grace Kelly, and Ava Gardner in the middle of Africa, sort of. Yeah, that'd be cool. kind of a they... love story and drama. They took some uh, footage from. The movie that we just reviewed, King Solomon's Mines, and reused it in this movie. I, I think a lot of the footage from King Solomon's Mines was subsequently used in other lower I, I budget, not as good movies. So. <laughs> they had a lot of it, a lot of footage. Yeah. All right. Well, that was our review of Cry, the beloved country. And coming to you from North Bend, this is Matt. And here in Los Angeles, this is Bob wishing everybody happy movie watching. Oh,
I started saying this is the movie, that's the best movie ever made. And then I realized, wait a minute, there's also Gentleman's Agreement, Crossfire, uh, Bridge on the River Kwai. So I, it's in the top 10, but it, I, I could watch this and never get tired of seeing it. Yeah, I'm definitely going to watch it again. It's so good. <laughs> 